Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Corey Garibaldi. He is assistant professor in the Department of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. His courses focus on histories of citizenship, imperialism, cultural and economic thought, and the African diaspora. His new book is titled Impermanent Blackness, The Making and Unmaking of Interracial Literary Culture in Modern America. The book explores interracial collaborations in American commercial publishing, authors, agents, and publishers who forged partnerships across racial lines from the 1910s to the 1960s. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. We start with uh, Ron. Why don't you introduce yourself? Member of class of 63, high point being a roommate of John Woodford, of course. Uh, Uh, (laughs) And most of my life in television and video and still doing some writing and uh, making videos with an iPhone for climate purposes. Hi, uh, Pete DeListavoy. I'm an editor and writer, and I'm looking forward to getting my mind expanded today for <laughs> sure, and also reading your book. Uh, recent, I'm a believer in understanding nations and cultures through their literature, and, and, and even current events, uh, too. And lately, I've read uh, Richard Wright, Chester Himes, and uh, Ralph Ellison. At the moment, in order to understand the war, I'm reading Dostoevsky. Jerry. Good morning. Um, class of 63, environmental lawyer, a couple of years in the Peace Corps, worked for the state government, federal government oil companies, nonprofits, et cetera, live in Pasadena, where we've had nine inches of rain and in the mountains, nine feet of snow. <laughs> David Allen. Uh, though a Hoosier native, uh, my life has been here after I got dragged away to college uh, on the eastern seaboard. Uh, I've had a, I like to say, a pastiche of a life uh, in business, <clears throat> academics, uh last decades uh, spent my life as an activist one way or another, principally focused on uh, protecting and strengthening democracy. Uh, looking forward to our discussion today. Uh, Jeff Fox uh, in southern Spain, where we don't have snow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Parts of the country have got a lot of it, but but here, here right on the edge of the Mediterranean, we're... Uh, we are snow free, although it's, get, it's getting a little colder. I'm writing fiction now. I used to I used to teach sociology, but I now write fiction. Okay, Amp. I wanted to write fiction, but I never got to it. Um, <laughs> time. Uh, no time like the present. <laughs> you're, you're, you're waiting, right. waiting until you got old, but don't wait any longer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure to what degree I'm a token wasp preppy in the group. Uh, but 
I, I was in the class of 59 at Middlesex School, and one of my classmates there was John Vance, whose father was the president of Studebaker in, in, in uh, Indiana. And John was a tall, redheaded guy who uh, very, very heavy and on the on the football team and very frustrated with uh, anything intellectual. John. Uh, hi. Uh, we had a 1951 Studebaker in Benton Harbor, Michigan, so I feel quite connected. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan now, where I edited the university publication. And before that, my journalism ranged from Muhammad Speaks to New York Times. So, again, Liz. Hi, um, I'm also a member of the class of 63 at uh, Radcliffe. And um, I'm a California native and feel very strongly about being a California native, graduate of Hollywood High School. Um, but I've now been on the East Coast for 15 years, uh, just outside of Washington, DC. I moved because my children were both in the Foreign Service and I decided that if I wanted to see them, I needed to be here. Um, and I'm a almost completely retired cl clinical psychologist and also uh, finding out more about my enslaver ancestors and making connections with descendants of the people that my ancestors enslaved. Okay, Marcy. I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City, not at all retired. Um, looking for an archivist, and I was an English major in my youth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, David, David Othmer. Uh, I'm another token white preppy here. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, went to, uh, <laughs> I, I went to Andover from Copacabana Beach, Copacabana Beach to Andover, Massachusetts. What was I thinking? <laughs> you never were very bright, David. What can I say? <laughs> uh, I spent my I spent my career in public broadcasting in New York City and in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, grew up in South America, as I just intimated. Well, Curry, welcome to our group. Thank you for coming on and tell us about yourself and about your book. Okay, great. Um, so I'm Corey Garibaldi. And I am from Minneapolis. So um, I grew up there, went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, where this project uh, began. And I've been teaching, did a PhD in history. Somehow ended up writing about writers. Uh, but hopefully, uh, given the eclectic range of your own careers and aspirations, you'll be sympathetic to, to the range. Of disciplines and I've been teaching at the University of Notre Dame for the past seven years. So I am currently in the Department of American Studies and I have faculty relations with the Department of Africana Studies here and also am a faculty fellow of the Nanovic Institute of European Studies. So um, this is my first book that we are talking about and the title, Impermanent Blackness, The Making and Unmaking of Interracial Literary Culture in Modern America, is a big story of American and African-American literature that stretches from the turn of the 20th century up until the early 1970s. So the book is primarily concerned with permutations of places in 
uh, publishing, writing, and narratives where racial lines are crossed, whether that be in the context of a narrative where there is an author who is writing across racial lines, whether that is on the level of a production of a book, if it's a publisher and an author who are working across racial lines, or whether that be in the case of an audience where an audience is reading across racial lines uh, to think of a couple of people who show up in the book that have been mentioned thus far, Richard Wright and Chester Himes, two people with extraordinarily uh, diverse audience bases, uh, both within the United States and abroad as well, to just give you some um, something of an introductory uh, you know, sense of the kinds of people and the kinds of texts that I associate with this uh, interracialist mode of writing in the 20th century. What got you interested? What got me interested? When, before I started graduate school, I wanted to go to graduate school desperately. So, <laughs> I mean, so, so for those of you who've gone to graduate school, I, I needed to find that topic. I needed to find my niche. And one of the things that I started studying, and this is at the University of Minnesota, I was working there at the time, and I worked with this historian and American studies scholar, Larry May, who was kind enough to let me into a graduate seminar of his. And, you know, he basically just said, you know, like, pick, you know, pick a topic and you can join us. Really wonderful American studies program and history program as well. So what I wanted to research is how Black writing was sold, how African-American literature was sold to the public. And so this was before the days where everything was all nicely digitized for us and you could find anything that you wanted on the internet. This is, you know, um, I guess sometime before 2009. And, you know, today Publishers Weekly, for example, is completely digitized. Um, at that time, I was carrying around like these huge tomes. Those of you who are publishing probably know what I'm talking about. Publishers Weekly is like a huge, uh, you know, publication in itself, but I was carrying around volumes of them, just looking at how these writers were sold. And one of the things I had found out is, you know, people are still familiar with the, the big three of African-American writers. So the big three, uh, you know, that I associate with African-American writing in the 20th century are James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Ralph Ellison. And one of the things I found out by looking at these publishers weeklies is that there's a, a host of other black writers, for one thing. But then the other thing is that there's this one guy who <laughs> so much more famous than any other American writer of his time. And his name was Frank Yerby, mm-hmm. novelist. And, and not only was he the, the best-selling African-American author of the 20th century, he was the best-selling American author at mid-century. So over the course of the 20th century, somewhere between 75 and 85 million copies of his books have been sold worldwide. In the early 1950s, he was the most popular writer in France, period. So it sounds like some of you may have read him or read about yeah, him. Yeah, I read him uh, several because in um, maybe early high school or so, Frank Yerby books, my parents had them. And um, you couldn't tell that he was a black writer if you didn't know. He wrote about, uh, well, he wrote sort of like bodice ripper romances, uh, swashbuckling and and historical romances, let's say, that was his, 
his strong point, and he was very good at them. So that it was sort of, um, you know, it wasn't exactly, uh, for back then it was almost pornography. <laughs> you know, he was, they, were, they were racy books. They were, as I say, it was like the, like the movies, the pirate movies you would see back then, where at some point the heroine's part of her dress would be torn. You'd almost have a glimpse of a breast. So anyway, I read black, a bunch of black those. Characters? He had black characters. Um, not usually, but sometimes there might be. But I don't know. You don't. He, he wasn't. I don't think there was a notable black character that I can recall. Can you, Harry, Corey? So the um, so so the other side of all of these stories that he sold, these novels that he sold, he was prolific. So I think you know across his career, he published around thirty-three novels. His first best-selling novel, Foxes of Harrow, was was a was a typical sort of interracial story in that there are black and white protagonists yeah. are well represented in it. And at the time, there was some there, there was this Harvard graduate I can't think of his name at the um, off the top of my head, but he wrote for the Afro American, and you know he said that this is like the biggest indictment of American society since Uncle Tom's Cabin. So there was a sense that he was sort of, you know, both critiquing American society in a way that was both palpable, but then also doing so within the context of the romance romance genre. And so, there were the first of the first few of his books did actually feature African American protagonists more prominently, and then he just moved into different directions so that not every story that he had either featured them as prominently, or not every story was so clearly pertaining to questions around, you know, prejudice or discrimination as it affected, um, you know, Black folks here in the United States. He just had a big imagination and he, he was not limited in any way to either United States, modern history, and so forth and so on. And then there's also this component where the stories were uh, very, not only romantic, but very sexual for their time, for their time period. Um, I don't, I don't know how comfortable I'm saying any more than that, but one of the things that's so fascinating about it, it's not, which is not surprising that your parents had these books, is that he was extremely popular with African-American readers. He was very, very popular with American readers. He was very popular with Western readers more generally, but um, every, every Black reader who read Frank Kirby knew that he was Black. He was widely credited and celebrated within the context of the Black press, uh, you know, unevenly so in the mainstream press, but it was a an author who Black readers could stand behind as a way of both supporting a Black writer, but then also sort of thinking about this broader sort of worldview that a Black person might have that wasn't just limited to questions that pertain to race in the context of the United States. I don't know if that's a fair assessment. Yeah. If that's yeah, a way of understanding him. Where did Frank Yerby grow up? He grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Mm. So he is someone who, um, again, a story that won't be, you know, too unfamiliar with some of you who, you know, very light-skinned African-American person, you know, like, you know, mixed race, um, you know, someone who also claimed Native heritage, Irish heritage, um, you know, much like many African-Americans in terms of sort of, you know, the, the, the ways that, you know, were labeled as African-American, but, you know, often have other kinds of heritage as well that um, are not accounted for. So someone whose family grew up on, you know, 
the non-white side of the color line. And so one of the things that he would joke about is sort of, you know, getting beat up by the white kids, you know, one afternoon only to be beat up by black kids the next, you know, for not being black enough, but also sort of not being white at the, white at the same time. He went to uh, Payne College and then he attended an HBCU, which I should know right off the top of my head, but I'm blanking on which. He went to, um, he went to the school that is in Nashville, which is... Fisk. Fisk. I think he went to Fisk. I think he's yeah. a Fisk one. And then from Fisk, he yeah. attended graduate school briefly. Um, he was enrolled in the PhD program at the University of Chicago. Hmm. And instead of finishing his PhD, he um, was around the time of the beginning of the um, Second World War. He then went into factory work um, at Ford. So he both was not able to finish his PhD, but then he also had some real and I think in some ways merited questions about just how lucrative it would be for him to receive a PhD at that time. So he didn't have the encouragement to finish. Peter. But what are the implications of the uh, the word impermanent in your in your title in your book's title? Excellent question. So I think that Frank Gerby is very much emblematic of the impermanence of blackness in terms of thinking about some of the authors that are central to the story and some of the narratives that are central to the story as well. So there's a you know, sort of paradigm whereby someone like Yerby can be read as white and not even sort of re be regarded as an African-American writer or have his work regarded as African-American literature, or alternatively, one that he can be sort of elevated as, you know, an exemplar of both Black writing and the African-American literary tradition, you know, which is very capacious. Um, so that someone like him, and many of his very successful peers at mid-century, especially those who are black, were understood and credited, you know, for their cultural achievements, but those achievements have been by and large forgotten as a means of understanding the people who are at the center of the story. So that's why um, after much deliberation, my editor and I decided on impermanence as a way of characterizing these people and their stories and the things that they wrote. I would, I would think that Ralph Ellison's essays, Shadow and Act, and his essays would be somewhat in that vein too. Yeah, non in reflecting a kind of a, uh, a supra or above racial experience. I think that that's entirely correct. I mean, one of the things that is so fascinating about this, you know, mid-century in particular, is all of the work that black writers and intellectuals in particular, although not exclusively, what they did to sort of evade the um, the what might be characterized as the certainty of race, right? If we know that race is a construct, and we know that race had been used to divide people, especially during the Jim Crow period. And so a lot of what African-American writers and intellectuals 
did during that period, more so than their credit for, as just to <clears throat> confuse and sort of blur racial lines, whether that be, you know, writing about, you know, the stories of Irish people, Irish Americans, Italian Americans, uh, you know, bringing more people into the fold than we might otherwise assume in the production of publications and other stories, um, art and illustrations and things of that sort, but really sort of wanting to get beyond the sort of discourse of the ways that we're different from one another to be thinking about the things that we share in common, which of course is, um, you know, very germane to some of the work that people are trying to do in earnest in the 21st century. Uh, I'm intrigued with your concept, Corey, of the impermanence uh, of of uh, blackness. And I remember sneaking into my father's bedroom and reading his uh, Frank Yerby books when, was, when I was 10 or 12 and getting off on them. Yeah, they're racy. <laughs> well, they were incredibly racy uh, in uh, those years, right, John? Yeah, that's true. Um, but... Uh, I, I, I'm just very puzzled about what I think that's a, the, the impermanence concept is uh, very helpful. Uh, I think now we have impermanent whiteness also uh, as as like in uh, where is it Mexico, there is uh, the concept of La Raza where everybody becomes one race and, and that's going on in a, a lot of ways. Uh, and I, I have two daughters who are who are light skin interracial, and I remember one of them being ten and asking me, "Who am I, Daddy?" And, and uh, uh, I think you're really onto something with this concept, but I, I, it, it, it's really confusing to sort of follow the uh, twists and turns of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, and and, and of course, I think less confusing. You know, for someone like you, especially, um, you know, someone who has, you know, children who are mixed race. And I think also less confusing for people who are either, you know, immediately sort of familiar with their mixed race heritage or, you know, phenotypically reflective of their mixed race heritage, where they sort of are aware of just, you know, how clear it is that, you know, as people were mixed, <laughs> right? And, um, you know, a lot of Americans in particular sort of you know, I think mostly unwittingly, but then sometimes wittingly sort of want to double down on sort of how clear racial categories are between Black, white, Latino, if we throw out what, you know, people don't want to talk about in relation to Latinx or Asian and so forth and so on. Um, you know, but those lines are often much more blurry in practice. So especially as this pertains to questions around Black identity, Black culture, Black literary output, there's nothing that is authentically Black, <laughs> right? So, you know, if you think of someone like Oprah, you think of someone like Malcolm Gladwell, you think of someone like Sadie Smith, I mean, they're producing something that is much more universal, universal that's not going to be pigeonholed, you know, you know, in relation to any particular kind of literary or cultural tradition. While that is sort of <clears throat> provocative in itself, they're also not new. There have been people who've been doing that for centuries. And so my stories focus primarily on the people, you know, white and black authors alike, who have really tried to confound these boundaries, but whose works 
in some ways have been both illegible from the time that they published them, but then have certainly not had any particularly neat place to fit in terms of our cultural memory of these people, the exemplary writers and cultural professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, Jerry. First, a comment in terms of uh, uh, racial identity, if you like. Uh, I grew up, you know, very light skin, but I grew up in an all-black community. Went to all-black element elementary schools. I never heard the term multiracial. My mom was black, my dad was white, but I was black. You know, the one-drop rule is what it amounted to. So, I know things have changed now, but when I hear, you know, uh, Barack Obama being called multiracial, I'm thinking. Hell, I was never called multiracial. I was black, period. You know, <laughs> stay in your place, nigger. So and that's what I was told. Um, but then more of a, a question in terms of authors. Now, I certainly grew up reading James Baldwin, had no problem getting books on Langston Hughes. But how difficult was it for black authors to find publishers? And how difficult is it today? I mean, today's a big question for a historian. <laughs> I have to warn you. So, you know, I think that, I think we're at a really exciting moment. I think that, you know, we're seeing America explode with all sorts of input from, you know, a, just a diverse group of producers, which is exciting. Um, it's, I, I won't say that it's something that we haven't seen before, but I think it's something that we haven't seen in a long time. And I think that it's really new to the past few years. And 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 to you know sort of peg it to someone, I think that it wasn't until Obama that I started to see people who looked like Obama on TV. <laughs> so I remember that shift. It didn't start you know during the protests of the past few years. I think it's something that started with Obama in a way, in terms of the sort of thinking about like who can be represented as an authority, you know, in popular culture. And there are many different ways that you know we can register that in terms of thinking about that shift, but. I think what's happening today is exciting. I think, especially for those of you who've worked in writing, publishing, and media, you know that it's never easy. <laughs> it's well, never obviously, easy. obviously, you didn't grow up with Amos and Andy, so or Beulah. Right. I did. Fortunately, I did not. Not fortunately. And and I think that in terms of thinking about you know, what you're talking about historically, I think that that's completely spot on, right? I mean, I think that the this one, especially for someone like Frank Gerby, but there are other examples in my study, another person who I write about, W.F. Bratwhite, um, you know, who's someone who would be very phenotypically mixed race in terms of how they're understood today or multiracial. Um, he was someone who was Black. He was someone who's known as Black. I mean, there wasn't this kind of, you know, clear, commonly accepted sort of two sides of the coin thing, coin thing but, you know, Black and white were really, really firm categories. And a part of the reason that those are firm categories is because of the ways that, you know, the federal census changes in the 1890s, right? I mean, there's no longer, um, you know, what is understood or like what is literally a mulatto category. It's it's like you're black or you're white as a way of kind of understanding things. So, um, you know, and then obviously strategically, um, you know, for people either you were thoroughly committed to being black as you know folks such as Madison Hemings were um you know and his siblings or you know strategically speaking you decided to pass as white and then you were you were white but living as a mixed race person is you know something that's far more fraught in practice who was the author you just referenced was it Brad Berry or Brad B Bradley W S Bratwhite Bratwhite yeah Spencer 
Yeah, that's a very uh, really fascinating question that we're that you're pondering here. Uh, the question of identity and where it's placed, uh, and uh, uh, the thing that the comment that that uh, Jerry made about uh, uh, who am I uh, uh, was reminded me that at Harvard about uh, two years ago, three years ago, maybe they were. Um, uh, street protests of black students saying I too am black uh, because they felt that they did not have any representation uh, uh, anywhere on campus of the presence or, or you know, inputs of black people. But uh, that I was wondering about that question is, is, is one of a great social question goes beyond literature, but then it comes to, to, uh, to uh, 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 the fact that what do you do with uh, people? I don't know if you mentioned them before I came on, but you know Alexander Pushkin, or uh, or uh, uh, Dumas, uh, and and people who were uh, the most famous black writers of their time. Pushkin is a national rush. He's the poet laureate of Russia, and uh, 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 Alexander Dumas, whose father was a general under Napoleon's you know army. Uh, what do you do with these people and uh, in terms of putting them into context, especially for people like your your uh, like uh, your daughters that both you and Jerry uh, uh, mentioned? Um, I'll just want to put in one quick thing that <laughs> one funny thing about that dilemma goes the other way. I remember when Peter and I uh, uh, and a, uh, a South African uh, uh, member of the uh, ANC, which was then in exile went to see Malcolm and meet Malcolm and Malcolm uh, looked and said, asked about Peter's presence. And the ANC guy said, Peter's in this, he's been to this, he's been with us through all of this and that. He's one of us. And Malcolm had a, his mind was so brilliantly quick. And he said, oh, well, he's a black, I see he's a black soul in a white, in a white skin. Uh, you know, so, uh, everybody struggles with this <laughs> struggles it comes up in the oddest ways the moments like that you know because you know how do you classify a guy who's done more you know given so much of his life like peter you know to uh uh justice that involves justice for black people you know who is what so uh i love the fact that you brought this up uh, uh and i'd like to hear your comments on it yeah, well, I mean, and I, and I love the fact that that you are this up. I mean, it reminds me of you know some of the people in my book, you know, such as Walter White. Yeah, one of the bravest guys of all time. Yeah, right? and he's like investigating lynching, and you know, sort of like just hmm. almost praying that they don't realize that he's black. And and you know, and that's <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. for those of us who are black, I mean. That's often just, you know, what black folks look like. Like sometimes I'm in my, you know, at a family gallery and I'm thinking this person could have totally walked away from this family, you know, and, and they know they could have walked away from them. Yeah. yeah. Charles, 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 Charles Chestnut, another really great example. Someone who was very light-skinned, if not phenotypically white. Gene Toomer, another person in the book who fits in that same category as well. I mean, but if you, and if you think of someone like Charles Chestnut, I mean, so many of these different figures who we've been discussing thus far, you know, if they have to choose sides, right? They come from these backgrounds where they know that people in their family have been unjustly discriminated against. 
And so it's no question whether or not they're black. They're black because, you know, the, <laughs> you don't want to be on the other side if this is the, you know, zero sum game that, uh, you know, people are living with, you know, some, in some cases under horrific circumstances historically. To answer your question about Pushkin and Duma, I teach them. I teach them. It's, it's the, I think it's one of the best things that we can do is teach them. And, and in the case of Pushkin, um, I actually just wrote um, a short blog post on the Princeton University Press website about not only him, but then also Duma writing about Pushkin in the 1850s and writing about uh, Pushkin's great grandfather, the African general Abram Petrovic Ganabal, yeah. but then also the ways that Pushkin's descendants were racialized as well, so that you know, Pushkin, I, I don't like doing blood quantums in terms of people's blackness, but he was only one eighth black, but his contemporaries said some very disparaging things about him. So they racialized him so that he understood himself as black. He said, you know, quite unequivocally, I stand with my brothers, the Negroes and slavery, you know, because he then like looked on in abhorrence with what had been going on outside of Russia. And he thought and wrote a lot more about race than was ever picked up in the US. So not conspiratorially, you know, he was by and large not translated into English because it would give people the misimpression that black people had the same capacities as white people. And so any references to his race or any translations of him at all were studiously avoided. The people who did translate him in earnest were African-Americans. Mm. So including Mercer Cook. So I write about some of this in the, um, the post that I did for Princeton University Press. You can see it on their blog. But then I'm also, you know, doing a lot of collaborative publishing with a colleague of mine in Slavic studies. So my sister was a Russian language, Russian area studies major. So I was introduced to Pushkin quite early. And she studied in Russia. She took me there. And so we're writing um, a couple things, but one of them is translating text where Pushkin himself talks about race, blackness, slavery, and so forth and so on. But then also scholarship that has been published in Russian that has not been translated into English so that people have more of a corpus for understanding, you know, these exemplary black writers, but then also just thinking about them in ways that might otherwise be understood as, you know, kind of white literary or cultural achievements, you know. I think that he was very emphatic and would have written more about his African heritage if he had not died so young. But this was some, certainly something that Dumas was interested in, which is why Dumas wrote about Pushkin. And also why Dumas wrote about Alessandro Medici and so many mm -hmm. other figures that I think are relevant. Who was that? Medici? Yes, Alessandro de Medici, who's the first, um, basically the, the, the first prince of Florence. And he's also someone who was of mixed race heritage. So Catherine Fletcher has written a book about him recently. It's called the the first. Um, I think it's called the first the the Black Prince, the first Duke of Florence. I'm, I'm butchering the name of the title, but mm -hmm. Catherine Fletcher, you can find it, and she writes. And, and but the the story is you know certainly just a pretty standard historical study, but then it's also sort of meditating on the fact that this prince <laughs> is a black person, right? And what she says is, in her study is, he'd been assassinated once, once when he's actually assassinated by his cousin, but then secondly, a kind of historical assassination in that, uh, you know, people who wrote about his 
uh, reign and his heritage and, and, and these things had basically um, over-exaggerated, uh, you know, the sort of maniacal features of that reign just mm. based on his blackness. Mm. So I highly recommend that book. But that's also someone who Dumas wrote about <laughs> as well. Um, and this, both a play and a, a study of Florence as well. Mm -hmm. So Dumas really does pick up on this stuff um, just as a means of kind of thinking about where someone like Dumas fits. And I think that Pushkin would have done similar work as well. Mm -hmm. George. So I'd like to follow up on Jerry's question. And I've been thinking while you've been talking about how to phrase it appropriately. And I'm, I'm not sure that I've come up with the way, but I'm going to throw it out anyhow. Clearly, there are a lot of Black authors publishing in various areas in, in the 21st century is it do, do you have any sense of whether or not it is difficult for black authors to publish writings on race in the 21st century yeah um again this is this is a, a stab in the dark for someone who's a historian i mean i think that i think that american publishers and publications have never been more eager to embrace Black writing and also narratives about Black life. Um, but then I also want to reiterate, once again, I think that it's a really, really, really competitive market. And so I wouldn't call it easy. One of the things that, you know, is somewhat distinct to our own time, although there's certainly precursors in terms of thinking about vanity presses, smaller publications, is that it's so much easier now for people to self-publish. You know, I'm not on TikTok, I'm not on YouTube, I'm not on Twitter and all of these other places where people can tell their own stories, but it's never been easier for people to tell the stories that they want to tell either, whether it be about themselves, whether it be about, you know, race broadly construed as you know i think you so rightfully asked about but if you're not able to publish in you know what is understood as a sort of uh, esteemed venue certainly there are other ways of telling your story does that partially answer yeah it does thanks so I, and I, because i think that i would hate to especially as someone in my position you know i'm a professor I think it's relatively easy for me to you know, gain access to venues, but even for us, it's pretty difficult. So if you're someone who, you know, has a limited education or you're someone who only has a BA or someone who hasn't, you know, studied writing or had a track record with it, I would assume it'd be, you know, difficult, but I think it's always been difficult. I think it's, but I think that we've never, but I think that in terms of sort of the openness, I don't think that um, there are many precedents in terms of how open people are for different stories. But I think that they also want to hear these stories in new ways, as in people don't want the same old story about race. I think they want new stories about how race works, because if you just get those same stories over and over again, I think people are um, somewhat desensitized to those stories. Good point. Wow. Good point. Yeah. Uh, Liz? Um, I'm I'm wondering about are there any uh, female uh, Frank Yerbys 
Um, and I'm wondering about in the in the in the period that you were studying, uh, where did women come in? Where did women come up? An excellent, excellent, excellent question. The first person that I think of that would be a counterpart to Frank Yerby off the top of my head is Anne Petrie. Um, A-N-N-P-E-T-R-Y. So her first book, uh, a best-selling novel titled The Street, which was published in 1946, is the story of a single Black mother in Harlem who works for a white family in a, as, a, in, as a domestic in Connecticut. And it's, it's something of a counterpart to Richard Wright's Native Son. It was enormously popular. But then she also wrote a number of other books as well where the racial dynamics were much more ambiguous. She also wrote children's books. Um, in terms of other authors, I mean, I'll just name a couple. Uh, one that shows up in my story early on, although uh, certainly much more should have been written about her, Georgia Douglas Johnson on the earlier side of things for uh, you know, Black women writers. Another example from the 1930s would be um, Juanita Harrison. She wrote this book, My Great, Wide, Beautiful World, mm-hmm. which I think it's so much is encapsulated in that title, right? As mm-hmm. a my great, wide, beautiful world, not my great, wide African-American world, my great, wide Black world, but, you know, someone who really sort of defied categories of Black, African-American, American, but someone who the travelogue of her, um, of a, a trip around the world in the 1930s, which mm. you can't think of something uh, more defiant in, during the Great Depression for a woman to travel by herself around the globe, which is what she did, and that was published as a travelogue, which I think is quite entertaining. And then one of the things that I talk about in uh, the code in my book is that in the 1970s, you have this burst of, you know, what some scholars term this feminist epoch of black womanist writing. And so I give a, uh, at least a dozen names of women who not only overlap with some of the other figures in my studies, um, but then also who sort of come of age, like at this like sort of moment, the 1960s and 1970s, where, um, you know, writing by Black women, women flourishes. But it's it's never absent either in the other periods that I discuss. Most namely in relation to my book are conversations around Alice Childress, who's enjoying something of a renaissance in New York City right now, and Lorraine Hansberry, who mm. is always a favorite, and yeah. whose um, play is, I think, now recently opened in New York City, her second play. How does how does Alice spell her last name? Childress. Uh, so C-H-I-L-D-R-E-S. Okay. So her play, Trouble in Mind, mm. was recently on Broadway in New York City, which um, I was not fortunate enough to be able to see, but I know it was a huge hit when it was pre-launched. Also, um, you know, the period, the flourishing period, one of it began before World War II because of the various um, writers groups in the Depression that formed often with, um, uh, you know, Communist Party people and everything, these writers groups in Chicago and elsewhere in New York, all over the country. There were a lot of black writers who emerged in that uh, period through those organizations. But I wanted to ask you, you mentioned in, in the 
material that describes you, they talk about Henry James. And I'm trying to figure out how Henry James connects with this subject, having... Henry James. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, one of the things, there, there are many ways. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, several of the African-American writers in my study, most notably Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright and James Baldwin, more, most famously, were huge fans of Henry James. Mm, okay. Huge fans of Henry James. I mean, probably some of you know, the biggest fans of Henry James from this cohort of American authors. So Richard Wright in particular, but again, also James Baldwin and also Ralph Ellison. If you look at Ralph Ellison's letters that were recently published, there are countless references to James. And one of, and he corresponds with biographers of the Jameses. Um, one of his last biographers actually asked him to blurb a biography of uh, the James family, which he found enlightening. Uh, so in that respect, African-American writers, many of whom I study, have always considered him a kind of a landmark of, you know, not only sort of, you know, on the basis of his stories, but, you know, sort of also on the basis of his stature. And for their part, the Jameses were also really interested in Black culture, including literature. So, and also interested in the African-American freedom struggle. So, you know, the Jameses are an Irish-American family. The grand, their grandfather, uh, immigrated to the U.S. from a plantation estate in Ireland. You know, he's Presbyterian, so he grew up second class, um, you know, second class, second status background in Ireland, uh, where, you know, they didn't actually have, like, the full rights as you might have otherwise. And uh, his grandsons, the brothers of Henry and William James, they served in two of the first Black regiments in the Civil War. They were in the 54th and the 55th Black mm-hmm. regiments. And that was intentional. They thought that it was actually more auspicious for them to serve with these Black troops than to serve in white troops. And a part of that had to do with the fact that they were Irish, right? And they were disparaged as such. And so there's a type of racial solidarity that the Jameses formed that was rooted in their own heritage. And you know, that also figures into how William James goes on to train and mentor like a number of Black students at Harvard, including W.B. Du Bois, who he considers to be one of the people that he was closest to at that institution. It meant a lot for him that William welcomed him into his house, that he fraternized with him. Um, the same thing, you know, to a lesser degree, but certainly to a degree about um, with um, Alan Locke. Leslie Pinkney Hill, another Harvard alum, writes a, a poem to William James that he publishes in the 1920s. So there um, are ubiquitous interconnections between African-Americans and uh, the Jameses in particular. Uh, Henry James was a huge fan of Pushkin, <laughs> huge, obsessed with du- the Dumas, Dumas-Fille and Dumas-Père. Mm. Uh, so one of my um, next book projects is tracing a long racial history of the James family. Because um, for so long, I think Henry James is someone who'd been read as sort of Brahmin, <laughs> mm-hmm. as one way of understanding that family, as, a, as in a family that would have nothing to do with Ireland whatsoever. 
but then I think also sort of read in terms of um, you know being sort of emblematic of like a very white canon, mm-hmm. and in many ways that obscured a lot of the biographical sort of detail of the Jameses. But then also some of the things that James was up to in his own writing, which was blurring racial lines, you know, and doing no small part to and, and his father was Swedenborgian. Exactly. Like a, a major, 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 um, what I would characterize as a major cultural abolitionist. Mm-hmm. And someone who was emphatic about teaching his children to grow up as emphatic abolitionists, which is why two of them enrolled in, enrolled in the 54th and the 55th. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. I, I knew Jim James Baldwin very well. Um, um, my sister was in one of his uh, was in a close writing group. In fact, we were friends of the whole family. And one thing that uh, 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 James offered was his great sense of of exactness in writing uh, that uh, uh, Jimmy Bone was a fanatic about. You know the discipline of writing and uh, how to write. You know uh, with uh, with that kind of uh, that kind of uh, um, exact. Uh, punch. Uh, but here, here is the thing that I would like to get you, really like to get your opinion on, uh, is, is the opposite, a very interesting thing. The movie uh, Django uh, was written by an Italian, uh, uh, great, uh, fantastically uh, uh, talented uh, director, uh, who also directed the movie. And uh, what he did was a great transposition. He, the movie is the story of Siegfried, the great German mythology, but with the uh, ex-slave as Siegfried. And, uh, and he goes to liberate Brunhilde, who is, uh, uh, and so this, uh, who is his uh, slave wife, but he's had to leave her, and uh, he comes back. And that's the, it's, it's exactly the story of, of Siegfried. Uh, and so you get this transposition that we were talking about. And I'd like to see if you if you had ever had that thought about that movie. What an incredible interpolation that was of culture and uh, of meaning of culture. I'm not I'm not familiar with it, but the ways that you're describing it certainly I think could cohere with some of the concerns that you know I've been interested in in relation to to literary culture and media. So, but it, 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 yeah, I mean, the things that I think a lot of the historical figures and phenomena that I talk about are actually just so ubiquitous in our own time, which I, which again, I think is kind of exciting in terms of the different ways that people yeah. are, you know, both interested, if not invested in, you know, playing around with culture and making it more inclusive, telling stories that uh, cross categories and so forth and so on. Uh, hip. Yeah, uh, I have to go in a second, but I just wanted to share a uh, shock that I just had. Um, I, I put in permanent blackness into uh, Audible uh, because I, I do most of my reading by uh, listening now. And uh, the, the uh, first reference was the, was the book, which is in Kindle, Kindle but not in Audible. But but here's what came afterwards. Paula's choice, skin perfecting, uh, exfoliant, 
for blackheads in large pores, et cetera. And then True Skin Vitamin C Serum for uh, face brightening serum for dark spots. And and those go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I have, um, I've asked my editor, um, you know, I've encouraged my editor to see what we might do to get, get the book in audio form. So right. your, right. your note is yet another, uh, <laughs> you know, good sign that I should make this case a little bit stronger. <laughs> yes. The marketing stuff is dystopic, but not surprising. Yeah, yeah. Many of us were very happy to major in the humanities back in you know, the early 1960s, and you teach humanities. And there was an article in The New Yorker a couple of days ago um, called The End of the English Major. And there was no question mark after that. Right, I saw that. And it said, in part, from 2012 to 2020, the number of graduated humanities majors at the Ohio State's main campus fell by 46%. Tufts lost nearly 50% of its humanities majors. And Boston University lost 42. Notre Dame your place, ended up with half as many as it started with. And I was wondering, what what is it like? Give us some sense as old humanities majors. <laughs> well, I mean, so I teach in my, my home department is American studies. And, and I, and I don't say this in a, in a way to, to brag on behalf of the department, but the, the department's doing great. It, all of its classes fill and they're oversubscribed and we have waiting lists. And a part of that has to do with, you know, what I think we would attribute to a very high level of teaching and engagement, right? How do you make these classes exciting for students? How do you make these classes a place where the student wants to show up to versus what you want to show up and do? Right. I think that some of the best teaching that we can do in the humanities is teaching that keeps our audience captive in the best sense of that word. And, you know, there's also some, you know, pretty sort of stark realities in terms of just thinking about what education looks like these days. Uh, you know, tuition and room and board and fees that are now north of $80,000. So, I mean, I, I don't know what I would do if my child came home and said I wanted to attend a college that would cost me over 80 grand a year and said they want to be an English major or a history major. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure on this generation to walk away with something that can be tangible, right? And And it's and it's hard to fault them because college was less than half that amount for private universities when I attended college. And I'm assuming that some of you would go down fractions and fractions and fractions in terms of thinking about what the actual outlay was. So I definitely don't, you know, subscribe to this kind of model where people are lamenting the death of the humanities. I think that the I think that the humanities is alive, kicking, and thriving where it should be, you know, with people putting in a lot of different effort uh, to, you know, again, attract students to their classes, you know, 
revise curriculum, make it exciting, accessible to students, teach a broader range of things that you know, older generations perhaps like would have not taught in the same way. Um, but then there are just ways that you can also reach out to students who are, you know, pursuing other topics. So, for example, I have for the past seven years taught a history of American capitalism class where I attract, you know, English majors, American studies majors, history majors, but then also business and econ majors who want a different kind of story about capitalism, capitalism that they wouldn't be getting either in, you know, the economics department here at Notre Dame, which is a fine department or in the business school. Well, Corey, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was enlightening. <laughs> for us, too. Enlightening. For us, too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. That was Corey Garibaldi. His new book is titled Impermanent Blackness, The Making and Unmaking of Interracial Literary Culture in Modern America. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.